can have your Bibles handy today as we uh, step into our final message in our family series. And as such, I would like to go in a little bit of a different direction than perhaps I've ever gone in a family series this morning. This is our sixth message. Uh, We've been at it now for a month and a half and finishing up today. Um, Over the past five weeks, I've given you a biblical template ideals that we draw out of the character of God and we hold up as our goals in the family. But we've also acknowledged throughout this series that things don't always work out the way that we desire or plan. Things don't always work out according to the biblical ideals. Uh, I preach ideals because the Bible teaches ideals and when we preach ideals, there's always a, a feeling of, of difficulty, disappointment, whatever it might be, as we look at our own lives and we recognize that we don't live up to said ideals. And yet this is not uh, an attempt, at, it's not an attack or a judgment or anything else, except to the extent that we recognize that in human terms, things are not always going to go as planned. First, because we as parents, for those of us that are parents, we are human which means that we will inevitably fail to live up to the example of God as our Father. That when I hold myself up as a husband and a father against God, I'm always going to fall short because God is God and I'm not God. He is my example. He is the one who has set the precedent for what I am supposed to do, yet I will not live up to him for he is God. Second, we also know that our children in here are human, which means that they also will fail, they will falter, and they have free will, fully capable of rejecting everything that I as a parent have taught them and showed to them. And third, we also recognize that not only are we as parents human and fallible, and our children are human, fallible, and we all have a free will, and we're all going to make the choices that, that we make, but also we understand that the world is a fallen world. And sometimes... Circumstances entirely beyond our control change our lives, derail the course that we would otherwise desire to be upon. Sometimes things just go bad. And that does not mean that God is not in control. We talked about that even in our prayer. We acknowledge that this morning as we pray for for our friends who are are having difficult times, who are having health problems and uh, um, who have lost loved ones and all of these things. And we recognize that God is in control. We recognize that, that God is bigger than our circumstances and that God's goodness is not dependent upon our circumstances. But we also recognize that in a human world, in a fallen world, in a sin sick world, things go bad. And I want to address today this idea, the various times when things simply don't go as planned. And I want to go through three primary points today, and it's going to be a points-driven sermon rather than walking directly through a passage of Scripture. I could have gone to Job and we could talk through uh, suffering through Job or, or any of the other uh, situations. We will come back to Paul, but we could go to 2 Corinthians 12 and talk about his thorn in the flesh as I did a couple of weeks ago, or, or we will end up today in Philippians chapter uh, 4 again as we think through the, the ideas there that Paul speaks of as it relates to circumstances. But I'm going to go through a point or oriented sermon today. Three points that we need to think through as we conclude our family series with what happens when things don't go in our family as we wanted, as we desired, or as we planned. 
And the first thing that we need to remember as we think through this is, number one, you are only responsible for what you can control. You are only responsible for what you can control. Now, last week when I spoke to our children, one of the things that we focused on in the duty of the child, uh, and we extended that as well. We talked about the wife and the church member and the citizen and the employee. One of the things we, we said as those who are under authority is that to respect the authority under whom you have been placed is not conditioned upon the character of that authority because my actions toward others are not dependent upon their actions toward me. We considered this fact in the idea that while we are not able to control how others treat us, and we'll come back to this later on in the service, we are always able to control how we respond to the way others treat us. My actions toward others are conditioned not upon their actions toward me, but rather upon God's actions toward me. I do what I do for the Lord's sake. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, the Bible says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because they deserve it? No. Why? Because they've earned it? No. Why? Because they've asked for it? No. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I forgive others because Christ has forgiven me. My actions are not dependent, my actions toward others are not dependent upon others' actions toward me. My actions toward others depend upon the way that God has dealt with me. And when we think about situations where things go bad, you have a bad parent who has in some way uh, neglected their responsibility toward you. Your child has fallen under the influence of some false teacher or wicked ideology and has rejected your teachings, possibly even rejected you. A tragedy happens in your family and things have never quite been the same. Your loved one, who before was a certain way, is distant, damaged, a different person. It's as if they're there, but they're not. And you can't understand it and, and, and you can't control it. They've changed. You can see them drifting and you feel powerless to do anything about it. In times like these, we're tempted to lose focus as it relates to the nature of our relationships with others. And then through that, we're tempted to respond in an unhealthy way. And these unhealthy responses can manifest themselves in several different ways. One of those ways is a tendency toward guilt or shame. In parents, this is usually realized in the weight of mistakes that you have made or must have made, you think, that brought your children to the path that they chose, path which perhaps has grieved you. Perhaps, as we've talked over these past weeks about parenting, some of our seasoned parents, those whose children have grown up, feel the weight of maybe mistakes that you have made as you've walked away saying, wow, I wish I could go back and do it again. As a matter of fact, I've had a few folks come up to me and say, I wish I could go back and do certain things again. And I think to some degree we would all say that in various aspects of our lives. Perhaps others have truly done things according to God's plan as best you understood and knew how. Of course, nobody is perfect. Again, we talk about the fact that we live in a very human world, in a sin-sick world. However, you still rest under the weight of children who have chosen another path, who have followed false teachers or unrighteous authorities into some other manner of life and living. In children, this guilt is perhaps more tragic 
that as they sit under the sorrow of some neglectful or abusive parent, they blame themselves. Thinking that it's something about them that has caused their parents to treat them this way or to reject them as they perceive. Children whose parents reject them because they wanted a girl and they're a boy or because they're not pleased. No matter how hard the child seems to try to live up to expectations, they cannot live up to those expectations. Or children who desperately desire a relationship with their parents that their parents are simply unwilling or disinterested in giving. Every situation is different, especially as it relates to wayward children. We could, in many cases, point back to some inconsistency in parents or selfishness in parents or some foolish or misinformed decision or... or, or um, Maybe even uh, a, a decision which at the time uh, they did not recognize or know was, was a problem. But looking back, they say, yeah, that was a really bad idea that they simply did not know at the time. And these things may have had a direct impact on these children in the direction they went. But we cannot discount the fact that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard, no matter how many safety nets we put in place, no matter how good our intentions are, there are situations all the time where things go bad where children are duped by the deceits of sin and their parents must watch powerlessly as their children are torn away from them emotionally, spiritually, sometimes even physically. Times where parents, in all good faith, simply trust the wrong person with their children or the wrong institution with their children and their children end up confused or abused. Children born into a home where parents have tremendous problems in their own lives that they have not yet resolved so that their children will bear the sorrow of their parents' problems in their own lives. Anger, shame, guilt, apathy. Things which they never asked for. Things which they don't deserve. Things which we would say no child should be asked to bear. Things go bad in this world. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen not yet to right all of those wrongs. We know that the Bible says that there's coming a day where all wrongs will be righted, where all of these things will be made right, where God will usher in righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ, and he will rule and reign in righteousness. But today is not that day, at least not yet. Still could be that day. It hasn't come yet, though. That day of righteousness has not come. It is coming, but it has not yet come. And because of that reality, that that day has not yet come, because we live in a sin-sick world, things will be reflected, a reflection of said sin-sick world. We live in a world of sorrow and of confusion and of abuse and of wickedness, and this is the realities of living in a sin-sick world. Now, one of the tendencies in our hearts in such a world is to bear these bad circumstances in guilt or in shame, to feel as though the faults and the failures of others are, in fact, my own. And if only I had done something differently, they wouldn't be acting the way that they are acting. If only I had done something differently, they wouldn't be angry. They wouldn't hurt me. I wouldn't have to... uh, uh, They... uh, They wouldn't have listened to that bad influence, whatever it might be, whatever the circumstance, lots of different possible circumstances here. And some of this may be true, right? In certain circumstances. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But let's also take a moment to understand the nature of a Christian's relationship to these feelings that often we call feelings of guilt or, excuse me, feelings of shame. Guilt and shame are negative emotions that arise in the heart of a person on account of wrongs or perceived wrongs which they have committed. And these emotions are given by God and are, in fact, very useful in the human life and experience. One of the things we need to recognize about emotions is that God has built them into us. And then, to whatever degree those emotions become a problem, it is the degree to which sin takes what is a viable emotion, an emotion that God has given us for a a proper reason, and twists that emotion or perverts that emotion into something that it is not supposed to be or something that is outside of God's design. And so when we talk about anger, yes, anger, most manifestations of anger we would recognize have a sinful tendency. However, anger itself is not intrinsically sinful. And we know that because God gets angry. Jealousy is one that, as we think of jealousy, jealousy is generally an outworking of something that is sinful within us. But jealousy itself is not a sinful emotion. And we know that because God gets jealous. And so there is a righteous way for these emotions to manifest themselves when they're rightly related to a relationship with God. However, what we find is that in a sin-sick world, it is common for those emotions to be twisted by our sin nature and manifest themselves in ways that are wrong or that are sinful. And the same thing can be said about this idea of guilt and shame. These emotions are given by God, are useful to the human life, because they are the first indication that something is wrong in my actions Or interactions with others. When I feel guilty or I feel shameful about an action, a reaction or an interaction, this is a manifestation that something has gone wrong in that interaction. However, like with every God-given emotion, guilt and shame are very easily twisted in my life and to manipulate me in ways that are fundamentally inconsistent with reality, inaccurate, or hindering my ability to see clearly, even my ability to move forward. And again, we'll talk about that more in a moment. As believers, we have an even more unique relationship with the ideas of guilt and shame than the unbelieving world. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, speaking of Jesus' ministry in, in prophetic terms, the Bible says, "...surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken." smitten of God and afflicted. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 speaks of the idea of Jesus dying on the cross saying that in doing so he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross. We see this idea also in Hebrews chapter 9. Speaking of Jesus Christ's blood in verses 13 and 14 Paul writes for if the blood of bulls and of goats, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice what these various verses direct us to understand. On the cross, Jesus took our sin. He bore the weight of that sin. And in doing so, he bore our guilt. He bore our shame. 
that the condemnation that was against us for our actions against God was nailed to Christ's cross. And that the finished work of Jesus Christ does not just cleanse our bodies, but it is able to purge our consciences from dead works in order that we might serve the living God. Now, that doesn't mean that we as believers don't feel anything when we do wrong. As a matter of fact, believers' consciences tend to be more sensitive to the ideas of sin and of righteousness than the unbelieving world that is around us. But there is a fundamental difference in kind. If we are rightly related to what God's Word tells us about Jesus Christ's work on the cross in the manner in which we experience these emotions that we call guilt and shame. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible tells us that, they, they, that Adam took of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that he ate of that fruit, and that their eyes were opened, and they knew good and evil, and they saw that they were naked, and they went and they clothed themselves, and then they heard the voice of God walking in the cool of the day, and the Bible says they hid themselves from God. And we talked about this when we were there in Genesis a little while ago. The reality of what happened there was that for the first time in their lives, they felt this idea of shame and that that shame compelled them to hide themselves from God. But in Christ, the Christian is called to experience a fundamentally different emotional and spiritual response to sin. When I sin and I feel that alienation from the Father, because Romans chapter 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death, when I sin, there is a natural separation that's put between me and God. We're not talking about salvation here. Jesus says that when a person accepts Christ, he is born again, he has made a new creation in Christ, that, that we are placed into our Father's hand and no man can pluck me out of my Father's hand. However, when there, is a, when there is sin in my life, there is a natural break in fellowship that takes place between me and God. But because I know that my sin is already nailed to Christ's cross, because I know that the sin is already paid for, because my conscience has been purged from dead works, what I experience in Christ is the weight of my sin, the reality of that separation calling me not to hide from the God whom I I have offended, but rather to flee back to that God for forgiveness. So that whereas the unbeliever, when the unbeliever feels guilt and shame, the weight of that guilt and shame naturally leads the heart to an alienation from those who have wronged, to hide from God, to the idea that God must hate me, reject me because of my sin. A desire to hide in shame. A compulsion to earn my way back to good graces and to, re and to feel as though I can't find my way back into good graces until I have worked my way, climbed my way out of the pit I've put myself into to put myself back onto good terms with God or with man. In Christ, we experience something very different than that. And this is where I make a distinction between guilt and shame, which Jesus took on the cross, and what the Christian experiences, which I'll call conviction. In Christ, we experience the same weight of our sin, maybe more so, because we know whom we have offended. But we interpret that weight through the finished work of Christ, not as a call to hide from God, to cower from God, but rather to flee back to my Savior, to be reconciled to God. 
to confess my sins so that I might be restored in fellowship. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I already mentioned Ephesians 4, 32, the same model plays out in forgiveness. Whereas in the world's idea of forgiveness where one is wronged and that works in us a resentment or a frustration or a bitterness whereby the the natural human desire is to cause a person to have to work their way back into a right relationship with me in Christ, the Bible says forgiveness is a choice whereby I choose to release a person regardless of whether or not they have asked for it in spite of the fact that they are not worthy of it. For indeed, that is how Christ has forgiven me. It is a fundamentally different way to look at the manifestations of these emotional reactions in our heart and in our life. To this end, when I feel the weight of actions that I commit that are wrong before God, that weight might be coming from two different sources. The weight of that conviction, if it's conviction, it's coming from the Spirit of God. Convicting my heart of sin, calling me unto restoration of fellowship through confession and repentance. Or that weight could actually be coming from my own deceitful heart. Maybe even the influence of the devil himself. Attempting to convince me that God cannot or will not accept me because of the flaws that rest inside of me. And weighing guilt upon my heart for things that Jesus has already taken on the cross. For things that are already under the blood. And that is actually, Christian, how you tell the difference. Say, Pastor, I feel something. I feel this, this, this weight, this shame, this alienation. Is this from God or is this my heart lying to me? Is this from God or is this, uh, is this, is this the devil trying to trick me? Well, you can know. If you feel the weight of some action, some thought, some intention, something that you would consider sin, and you confess it, well, it's done. You are released. If you continue to rest under the weight of said actions that you have already confessed genuinely before God, you've brought them before his throne, you've acknowledged him to be right and you to be wrong, you have placed them there. If you continue to feel the weight of that, here's what I can tell you on the authority of God's word. That weight is not from God. Because the spirit of God compels us unto reconciliation. If you have come to reconciliation, then what you are heaving under, what you are resting under, the weight that you are resting under there, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's your heart hanging on to something which God has already released in Christ. That's the devil trying to hold you under the weight of actions for which you've already been forgiven in order that you will be ineffective for Christ. And the call here is to invest deeper into the knowledge of God. If you're in that place where you've confessed it and you sought to forsake it, But that same guilt, that same shame is coming again and again and again. You need to invest deeper into the knowledge of God so that you can lead your heart out of those lies and into the truths of God's word, whereby you understand that when you have confessed a sin before God, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to bring you back into fellowship, to put you in the place where you are effective and and, and right with him again. So one of the tendencies of our heart then is to bear these bad circumstances in guilt or in shame. Parent, child, family's gone wrong. 
And you, you, you heave under the weight of the guilt or the shame for your faults, for your failures, or for the faults and failures of others. If only I had done something differently, they wouldn't be acting the way they're acting. If only I had done something differently, they wouldn't be angry, they wouldn't hurt me, they wouldn't, or they wouldn't have listened to that bad advice. But if you have done something wrong, and you've acknowledged that before God, you've made it right with God, and you've made it right with those that you've wronged, that's confession. You get it right. That's one of the basics of the Christian life, right? You do something wrong. You confess it to God. You get right with God. You, can, you go to the person you wronged. You make it right with them. You restore your relationship with God and man. If you're there, if you've done that thing, at that point, to rest under the weight of those actions or decisions is to hold yourself under a guilt or a shame which God never intended you to bear. Jesus already bore it on the cross. That's why he died. Don't rest under the weight of that which Christ has released you from. So the solution is to be quick, to accept the truths as it relates to forgiveness, to leave the past in the past, to move into the future. If you've done wrong, if you've made mistakes, get them right with God, get them right with the ones you've wronged. Don't rest under the weight of those past decisions. There's no amount of resting under the weight of those decisions which will change what happened. Maybe you're at fault. That's regrettable. Make it right as best you can. Restore relationships as best you can. Move forward for Christ. Warn others not to do what you did. You get to now be a trophy of God's grace in the midst of difficult circumstances and bad decisions. Pick yourself up. Determine to do better. And if those you hurt in the past continue to live in that hurt, that's regrettable. But that's outside of your control. Because even if you are the one that was at fault, maybe your child, your sibling, your spouse, your parent, whatever it is, maybe they did not choose to have you treat them that way. And you treated them that way. You did that thing and it hurt them. But they do get to choose how they respond. And if they've responded wrongly, if you've made it right, there's... There's nothing else you can do by holding yourself under guilt and shame for that thing. You can only do what you can do. You can only control what you can control. So one natural tendency as it relates to our response is guilt and shame. The other natural tendency, you're only responsible for what you can control. The other negative tendency that we have as it relates to this, my child or my sibling has gone wayward in a manner that I never taught or encouraged. They've put themselves under the influence of liars or of thieves or of deceivers. My parents are selfish or neglectful or abusive and they've been, uh, they have been hurt and, and they take it out on me or, or they blame me for their problems. The first tendency is to live in guilt or in shame, constantly pushing punishing myself excuse me, as a means by which to try to feel better about the bad decisions that others have made or that I've made in the past. But another tendency is to attack or to criticize, to tear down my child for their rejection of my teachings, that because they've gone wayward, I'm going to now attack them. I feel personally attacked myself because of the way that they have rejected my teachings or the way that they've rejected uh, my, my counsel. And so now I am going to attack them back. I'm going to criticize them back. 
to fight with my siblings when they reject the family's way. They're making mistakes. And so your, your desire to draw them back compels you to attack them, hoping to put the social pressure on them necessary to feel shame and so work their way back into alignment with what you think is best by criticizing them. Or to tear down my parents for their immaturities and their insecurities and their faults. To blame them because they're not doing what I think they ought to do by me. But again, Christian, our point here, you are only responsible for what you can control. It is not your job or your right to tear down your family in hopes of compelling them to align with your actions, your, uh, your, your idea of their right actions or responses. And when you do so, especially speaking to parents here, it's very possible that you will burn emotional bridges with your children that you do not want burned. That your actions towards your children might cause them to wash their hands of you. And your attacks toward them will be more effective at hardening their hearts than softening their hearts. And leading them deeper into the rebellion of their way of thinking. Now, if they've deviated from truth, you are under no obligation to follow them into their lies. You are, in fact, under an obligation to stand with and for the truth, even against a child or a parent or a sibling. But that doesn't mean you have to be nasty about it. Children, if your parents aren't doing right, you are under no obligation to pretend that they are doing right. But we saw last week, you are yet under an obligation to honor them, nevertheless. There are times when a relationship will be entirely destroyed by the actions of one or both sides of an interaction. And in those times, there must be permanent and deeply regrettable shifts in relationship. But if at all possible, Christian, don't burn the relational bridges that you have with someone because of the decisions they're making that you can't control. Because if there is, by God's grace, a day where they find repentance, you want them to know that you are still there, like the father and the prodigal son, with arms open, ready to receive, to slay the fatted calf, and to say, my son who was lost is found. You want them. You don't want them sitting at home saying, I want to go back to mom and dad and get their help and tell them I'm sorry, but I know that they're just going to attack me again. I, I've already burned that bridge and they've burned that bridge with me. They said I'm not their child anymore and, and I can't go home. You want them to know that they can come home. Don't burn that bridge. Yes, there may need to be separation while others are making wrong decisions. There may need to be a reevaluation of what your relationship looks like or what is even possible now in a relationship with that loved one because of the choices that are being made. But to attack, to criticize, to tear down rarely, if ever, draws anyone back from their poor decisions and far more often contributes to further alienation. And once again, we can go to Ephesians 4.29 and recognize... Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. So if we follow God's word, if we do things God's way, then we're already not going to go this route. 
But the temptation in the heart is to say, I can levy social pressure against this person by attacking them, by criticizing them, and thus guilt or shame them or manipulate them back into alignment with actions. Yes, but you don't need their actions. You need their heart. We talked about that several weeks ago now, right? So when things go bad, Christian, the first thing you need to remember is that you are responsible for you. You cannot bear the weight of others' decisions. You cannot bear the responsibility of punishing them for their decisions. You make sure that you're right with God, right with man, that your house is in order, and you leave the rest to God. Now, naturally, as I say these things, parent, if your child is still under your direct authority, right, if they haven't left home and they legally cannot do so, this changes a little bit, right? that That was last week. That was the week before. We've talked about that already. That's not what we're talking about today. If you, if, parent, if you have a, a 12-year-old child that is, that, that is falling prey to ideologies or, or rebelling against you, you've got a whole lot more tools in your toolbox right now to deal with that than what I'm talking about today. You don't just go home, put, tuck your child into bed, give them a kiss and say, well, I can't, can, I guess it's out of my hands. No, no, it's still very much in your hands. Do something about that. We've already talked about that. We're talking today about what happens when older children stray, what happens when those relationships are broken, what happens uh, when, 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 when you have bad parents, those sorts of things. So you make it, you, you, you uh, find, find where I was in my notes now, that wasn't in there. So things go bad. The first thing you do, you're responsible for you. You cannot bear the weight. You make sure that you're right with God. You make sure you're right with man. Your house is in order. You leave the rest to God. Second point then. Learn respectful appeal. This point is particularly directed toward those under authority. We would say to children, but of course by extension, wives and employees and everyone else. It's possible to both disagree with an authority and still honor them. And this is an important thing for us to understand. You can disagree with an authority and still honor that authority. And it is incumbent upon us to know how. The concept behind respectful appeal is that you, as a subordinate who is biblically obligated to submit to an authority as unto the Lord, are finding it very difficult to perform this task. Perhaps that is because the authority is asking you to do something that's unbiblical, but perhaps as well it's simply because the authority is making life hard on you. That Perhaps the authority makes bad decisions that are difficult to fall in line with, or that are making things harder on you, or that harder on everyone. Perhaps that authority is causing harm physically, emotionally, spiritually. It may be that an authority is asking you to offend the will of God, in which case the respectful appeal will come with a measure of ultimatum that says, if I cannot appeal unto you to, to, ask, to stop asking me to do this, then I'm simply going to have to say no. Because I ought to obey God rather than man. It may also be, however, that the authority is not asking you to offend the will of God, not asking you to step outside of your biblical mandate, but is also not doing right by God in the way they're treating you. Or even as simple as the thing they're asking you to do is not good, not efficient, not as profitable as something else. The idea from Colossians or from Ephesians where the Bible says, and First Peter as well, we considered it in First Peter, where the Bible tells servants to obey their own masters, not only the good, but also the froward. That master is not asking the servant to do anything unbiblical. He's just not being a kind, right-hearted master. And the important thing to understand is that submission 
does not invalidate appeal. And I've most dealt with this in the years that I've been a pastor among husbands and wives. That when we preach the idea of submission, that a wife gets it into her mind then that she has to quietly take whatever her husband is doing without any sort of appeal. And this is simply not the case. That if an authority in your life is not treating you properly or is not handling circumstances properly, you have every right biblically to make an appeal. As with everything else, we know that we have this right biblically because we see it all throughout the Bible. And while I don't have time to go through all of the examples, if you go study the interaction between Saul and David in 1 Samuel 24 you'll find a great example of respectful appeal. How about Queen Esther and Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 8? A great example of respectful appeal. Maybe David's appeal for the life of his son with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. Or Abigail's appeal to David in 1 Samuel 25. Or the appeal of the daughters of Zelophehad to Moses in Numbers chapter 27 as it related to inheritance in the land. Many such instances exist of men and women who are under authority approaching their authority in a manner that is respectful and proper as a means by which to petition that authority for something that they desire or something that they need without ever stepping outside the boundaries of honor and of submission. So let me lay down some principles to live by in this respect. Six principles of respectful appeal. Principle number one, and I'm just going to walk through these. Um, uh, again, I would love to go to all of these passages and show you where I pull these from, but that is not for today. I did um, preach a message on this that I pulled some of this from many years ago. If you would like, I can direct you to that message. I don't have it on the top of my head, but I can direct you to that message later where I spent a bit more time talking through the passages that correlate with these. But number one, prepare all hearts through prayer. Always remember... That respectful appeal. When you are interacting with authority, you are doing this, remember what we said last week, for the Lord's sake. And because you are doing this for the Lord's sake, that means that this is not just an interaction between you and an earthly authority, but you and a God-ordained authority with God as the head. You are doing it as unto the Lord, which means you are actually going to be appealing to God to touch the heart of your earthly authority as it relates to the thing that you are seeking to have done. Always remember that this is a faith issue. Your authority, no matter how pagan, no matter how unbelieving, is still under God. And that God can sway the heart of any man. To this end, and this is important, you need to pray that God would prepare their heart and prepare your heart as well. Because if God does not sway the heart of your authority, then you need to be prepared to hear no. And submit even if you... Even if your appeal goes on, uh, falls on deaf ears. If I have prayed and I have commended my authority to God so that... I am ready to appeal to my authority in the right way and I have prepared through prayer asking God to prepare their heart and asking God to prepare my heart then if I go to that authority and that authority says no then I have to believe that I did everything I could and now the rest is in God's hands. So you need to be ready to leave it in God's hands either way. Number two appeal to the proper authority. 
David went to Saul because David was a leader in Israel and Saul was the next authority up. Esther went to the king because Esther was the queen. There was no one to appeal to but to the king because he was the next authority up. But Daniel, when Daniel did not want to defile himself with the king's meat, he did not break down the doors of the palace and go and say, I need to talk to the king. No. He spoke to the prince of the eunuchs, and the prince of the eunuchs actually appealed for mercy. This is interesting. David actually, or Daniel, excuse me, actually had to work between two layers of pagans to get what he needed to get done. And yet he got it done. He appealed to the proper authority and he trusted God for the rest. Now, does that mean there's never a time to go over someone's head? No, but you start the process properly. Always go through the chain of command. Don't go over the head of your rightful authority in order to avoid conflict. It will likely cause more, and you don't need to because it's not just about that authority. It's about the God who is above them. Trust the Lord. Appeal to the proper person. Three, plan the timing of the appeal. Esther made sure before she appealed to the king that he was properly positioned for said appeal. She spent a significant amount of time and effort to make the circumstances appropriate for her to make the right appeal. By the way, all the time Mordecai was praying, right? Now, you may not always be able to do this, but anytime you can, make sure that you do. And I've said this before. Some of these things are very practical, right? But wives, that means if you want to appeal to your husband, if there is a respectful appeal that needs to be made, make sure it's not when he's had a hard day at work and he comes home and you say, I've got to talk to you. And then you go to try to make some appeal for some major thing that needs to change. That's not the time to do it. Not, make sure he doesn't have an empty stomach. That's a hard time for a person to be sensitive to the particular needs of another. If you want to appeal to your boss, don't do it during the yearly audit. That is not the time to pull him aside and say, hey, I've just got to talk to you. Uh-uh. If you want to appeal to your pastor, Sunday's not the best day. I know that's when you see your pastor. You know, Saturday night's not real great either. And that's when you see me. I get it. But if you've ever come to me and set something up on a Sunday only to have me completely forget, there's a reason. It's because there's a lot of things happening on a Sunday. And it's probably not the best time to come up and to tell me that I'm a heretic and that I need to change everything. Uh, you know, I've got to preach a sermon again tonight. It's just, you know, there are other times. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't try to be sympathetic to your request. It just means that it's probably not the time where I'll be most sympathetic to your request. These are not times when a person is predisposed to listening or to have the time even to truly consider your appeal. Four, establish submission and elevate authority. Make the lines clear between you and your authority. Don't come in a threatening manner with aggressive language, with a frustrated tone. You are not making a demand. You do not have the right to make a demand. You are under authority. You expect no special treatment. You have no right to expect a special treatment. You are under authority. You are informing an authority of a need, knowing full well that you are, in that sense, at their mercy. And if, that, if this sounds a bit humbling to you, and if it ruffles your feathers a little bit, that means you're human. But I remind you, 
God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Before honor, Proverbs 15.33 tells us, Proverbs 18.12 tells us this as well, before honor is humility. Five, make a clear and comprehensive appeal. Open the lines of communication. Leave no room for assumptions. I've told this to you many times as it relates to a husband and wife relationship. Husbands and wives have heard it in counseling all the time. Assumptions are the death of relationships. You don't want assumptions in your appeal. Give all the information necessary for the authority to make an informed decision. Humility and honesty go a long way toward trust, charity, and thoughtfulness. Thoroughness can go even further. And if you have a believing authority, such as wives with your husbands, you have other layers of appeal. You have other ways that you can go. You can appeal to the spiritual as much as the carnal. But either way, if necessary, of course, you can appeal to morality and and dignity if appropriate. And then finally, come with viable solutions. If the appeal warrants it, always come with a solution to the problem. It's a hard thing as a leader to always, be, always have problems laid at your feet that you then get to think through all the solutions on. And that makes me less disposed to commit the energy to it. However, if somebody comes to me and says, here's a problem and here's a solution, and I say, I agree that that's a problem, and hey, that's a good solution. It's very easy to identify a solution. It's harder to think one up. So you give your authorities a reasonable solution. Then you leave it in God's hands and you trust him to make up the difference. Determine to submit to your authorities whatever the outcome is in faith. Christian, when an authority in your life is in the wrong, respectful appeal is your first option. It allows the authority to access the blessings of God that come with them doing right by their subordinates. See, because especially if you have a believing authority, the fact of the matter is, as a pastor, I have a vested interest in doing right by you because God is watching. As a father, you have a vested interest in doing right by your children because God is watching. As a husband, you have a vested interest in doing right by your wife because God is watching and God does treat us in a manner that we treat others. That's a biblical principle. And so it is incumbent upon me to want to do right by my wife and my children. So then when a, my wife or my children come to me with a respectful appeal, not only are they doing what is best for them, but it is actually allowing me to understand a problem. And if my heart is rightly aligned with God, to seek to access the blessings of God by doing right by those who are under me. And it also gives the Holy Spirit of God maximum freedom to work within the heart of said authority because you've gone through a process of doing it in a manner that is right before God and man. And sometimes this won't work. And you'll have to engage in one of two other options. Respectful appeal doesn't work. Well, then you either have to submit or if he's asking you to do something that you cannot do to the glory of God, then you will have to begin to exercise respectful resistance. Submission, of course, is the ideal. But respectful resistance if their request stands in opposition to God's commands. What does respectful resistance mean? Well, I don't have time to get into all of it today, but let's just put it this way. It means you're not resisting the man. You're resisting the thing he's asking you to do. You're not resisting your authority. You are resisting the command 
when obeying their command would require you to disobey the higher authority of God's word. You are staying as best you can under their authority. Think of David and Saul. Think of David running for his life from Saul. Think of David having the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, but not doing it. And then falling on his face and appealing to Saul that Saul would not see him as an enemy because he's not an enemy. David was not fleeing from Saul because he had contempt for the man and for the man's authority. David was fleeing from Saul because he sought to honor the authority who was literally trying to kill him. And when Saul ended up dead, David did not throw a party. David killed the man who killed the king, and then David mourned. You see, David was never in opposition to his authority. His heart was always submitted and under his authority. He simply could not do what his authority was asking him to do. So, something's gone wrong in your family. Something went wrong with your children. Something is wrong with your parents. Something is wrong with your siblings. This has led to conflict, to frustration, to regret, to damage. And of this, let me say a few last words. And our third point here, serve the Lord with gladness. First, if the problem is one of physical abuse, spousal abuse, child abuse, you are under no obligation legally or otherwise to be abused. Now, as I say that, I know I'm walking on a slippery slope because in today's society, many will count me as an abuser of my children because I have brought them to church on this morning and because I teach them what the Bible says. But among we who are believers, whose feet are planted in the truths of God's word and so have the ability to discern reality as it truly exists, as we talk about true abuse, we're talking about physical abuse, we're talking about those things uh, which, which are, are make for, 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 for physical damage in wives and children. Those under authority are under no obligation to remain in a situation where they are being physically or sexually abused. Nor is the church ever justified in protecting abusers in the name of preserving some sort of structure of authority. Now, we've talked about before the fact that a part of, the, a part of us orienting ourselves rightly to the authorities in our lives is, if you think of that Venn diagram we thought through last week, we've talked through many times before, the three-legged stool of society, that, that there is a... A, a, a right that government has in society and that's to punish evil and to reward good. Our government has the right to levy consequences on those who hurt others. And the church does not need to say, well, we're going to keep this in-house. Yes, there's a place to keep it in-house. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, don't go to law against a brother, deal with it in-house. But that's the place where the church never does, right? My brother actually you know, wronged me financially. Well, okay, that's a place where you could keep it in-house. Where a person didn't hold up his end of the bargain and now there's conflict. Yeah, we don't need to go to law and have some, some unbelieving judge try to arbitrate in, in, in matters of, of, of relationships, right? Civil litigation. That's one thing. But then the church has gotten confused over time and they've said, oh, we've experienced sexual abuse in the church. 1 Corinthians 6 says, keep it in-house. Don't keep it in-house, no, we need, to, we need to take care of this. This person has done wrong, by, not just by that other person, not just by the church. This person has offended a, a, a society. 
There must be consequences. We must do right by our, our, our civil authorities in this matter as well. And so we're not here, I'm not here justifying, if you're sitting under, under the weight of tremendous abuse, I'm not, I'm not here saying that you just need to, to take that this morning. So I say, first of all, that my final appeal here, serve the Lord with gladness, is not telling someone who is in fear for their life or their wellness that God expects them just to absorb those wrongs in perpetuity. And if you find yourself into, in such a place, I encourage you, come see me. Let's deal with it. Second, before my closing thoughts, <clears throat> if things have gone bad, you need to pray. The greatest advocate you have is God. And while you can't control your wayward child, while you can't control your selfish parent, while you can't control the decisions of others, as we've said so many times, God in heaven knows the hearts of men. And it is on your knees in prayer that you can and will have the greatest impact on the lives of those who you can't control. Now, whether your family is going great or something has gone wrong, we need to be praying for one another. But if things have gone bad with your children, with your parents, you've got to pray. With all your heart and might, regularly, consistently pray. Because whatever limitations you have in your ability to affect things, your kid's not listening to you anymore, he's out of the house, you have no power over his heart anymore. Your parents are in authority. They're not, they're, they're, they're not doing anything that is, they're not asking anything of you that is biblically untoward, but things are just not well. You have no power to do anything about it. You've respectfully appealed. You've got no power left to them, perhaps. But you always, always, always have a direct line to the God who is their authority. So pray early and pray often. But apart from things such as this, when we think of wayward children, misguided, selfish parents, when principles that we have discussed in this family series have not been realized in our lives and our families for one reason or another, we come to one more place. One which I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago and a principle which Paul espouses in Philippians chapter 4. Verses 11 through 13, the Bible says this. Not that I speak in respect of want. That means needing or lacking important things in my life. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Oftentimes in life Christian you do not get to control how things are going to go. You do not get to control every aspect of how others treat you. And sure, you can shut down. You can cloister yourself into your house, have everything that you need shipped to your door. We can actually do that nowadays. And you could completely just close yourself off from the world. But that's not what the Lord wants from you. You don't get to control every aspect of how your parents raise you, children. You're going to look back and you're going to say, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's going to happen. You don't get to choose how they provide for you. The choices that they make for their home. You don't get to control, in this society at least, who your child marries. 
or the decisions that they make for themselves. You can't force someone to interpret your actions and intentions toward them properly. People have a free will. And beyond just people, sometimes things just go bad. People get hurt. And they have a hard time recovering. Someone's doing really well. They're on a path. Everything is going great. And then something happens. And it derails everything. They couldn't control that. But it derailed everything. Things started going bad. We don't get to control every circumstance in our lives, Christians. But we always, always have the opportunity to control how we respond. Paul said, I've been full, I've been hungry. He says, I've abounded and I've suffered great need. But he had learned that there is a capacity within him by the grace of God to have a consistency of emotion and of response in the midst of inconsistency of circumstances. He lived in the determination to serve in the hard places with gladness just as he would in the easy places. Because he knew the God who held the past as well as the future. And he knew that if what he did was right, doing what he was told, making sure he was right with God and men, leaving the rest with God, that God too would do what is right. And can we have the faith to say, for I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. That regardless of the circumstances in my life, regardless of the parents I've been given, regardless of the choices that my children have made, regardless of the the difficulties I am facing in my life, that God is able to do something in and through me in the midst of these circumstances. God does not fail because God cannot fail. Some under the sound of my voice have struggled in this family series. You've struggled because you've made mistakes. You've lost your children to the world, the flesh, or the devil. Or you did the absolute best you can, but lost them anyway. As a child, you have parents who are frustrating, who by every reckoning are not doing right by you. Maybe you don't even know, you didn't even know that that was the case, that your parents weren't doing great until you sat under this teaching and you said, wow, my parents aren't doing great. And you're tempted to become frustrated, angry, to punish your parents for their failings, to walk away, to rebel, to count your parents' failings as God's failings in your life and to get embittered against God because of what your parents have done to you. Now, neither I nor anyone else can make decisions for you. But parent or child, remember these principles. You are not responsible for others' actions, but you are responsible for how you respond. There is a God in heaven who has told you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. There is a God who loves you, who loves your children, parents, who loves your parents, children, and who loves you. And if you can learn, even in the hard places, to serve the Lord with gladness, then even as you ache in pain over that wayward child, that even as you rest in frustration over your parents' shortcomings, you can live in the joy of God's grace that can and will abound toward you. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see Philippians 4.13 on uh, the eye patches of football players and on the shoes of basketball players, and it's all well and good. Right, you know, okay, you can do all things. You can score a lot of points through Christ, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying you can score a lot of points 
or jump really high or run really fast or lift things really well. This verse is saying that in the hard times, you can have contentment and joy because Christ is your savior. Because God is your provider. That's what it's saying. This verse is not about the easy times. This verse is about the hard times. And as you do so, not burning bridges, not tearing others down for their failures, not resting in guilt and shame for things that are in the past that you cannot change anymore, not heaping guilt and shame on others for their actions, not attacking, not criticizing, not tearing them down. You can live, even in the hard times, in a spiritual and an emotional freedom which can only be known to those who have the faith to rest in God's character and God's promises which transcend whatever circumstances you're facing right now. You can live above those circumstances, above those difficulties, above that suffering, above that pain, trusting that God's grace is sufficient, continuing always in prayer. You do your part. You keep yourself in the love of God. And then you leave the rest to the one who loves you and who knows you better than you even know yourself. And if you're willing to step out in faith and serve with gladness in this hard place, You might even find in God's faithfulness that you will be a vessel that is more fit for the master's use than you ever could have been otherwise. That you will now be able to comfort others in their affliction with the comfort wherewith you have been comforted of God. That you might be able to rally around someone else who's in the darkness of their own lives trying to make these decisions, determining whether they are going to trust the Lord or not. And you can come alongside of them and you can put your arm around them and you can say, I did and it works. And then they'll do it too. Or perhaps you can identify that child who is heaving under difficult parents and you can be something for them that they would not otherwise have because you've seen those signs before. Because that was you 20 years ago. God doesn't waste trouble on us, Christian. And so perhaps it is that these circumstances that you've been under, that the path that God has asked you to walk, you've appealed, you've done your best, and now you're going to live and serve the Lord in these hard times with gladness. Perhaps it is that you'll be able to more, more able to comfort others, more able to face the things that God will ask of you, more prepared for that which he has along the way for you. And so long and short, more usable for God than you otherwise could have been. And if that can be the case, well, then to God be the glory. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.